This episode of Pitch List is brought to you by Screened Threads. Screen Threads is a family-owned business specializing in Nashville curated gifts. Check them out online at ScreenedThreads.com or visit them in person at Marathon Village. Hey everybody, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List. Join us on a deep dive into the heart of what makes writing songs and making music so magical. Let's find out what makes songwriters tick, and along the way, remember why we love music. Welcome to Pitch List. Hey everyone, Chris Lindsay here, and you're listening to Pitch List, the songwriter's podcast. Before we get started, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. And for more exclusive content and performances, don't forget to follow us on social media at Pitch List Podcast, or visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com. And now here's the show. Hey everyone, I'm Dana, the producer of Pitchlist, and this week Chris sat down in the studio with Grammy Award winning absolute legend Jim Ed Norman. From his start in the 70s as a composer, arranger, conductor, and player on the Eagles' iconic Desperado and Hotel California records, to his work as an A&R man and label head at Warner Nashville and Curb Records, Jim Ed's career is one of the most eclectic we've seen. He was one of the first Nashville execs to work towards signing more black artists in the 80s and was also a pioneer of expanding the Americana movement in the 90s. To have a career that stretches like this over numerous decades is not an easy feat to achieve, and Jim Ed remains active in the music world today, earning his first Grammy just last year. He's also currently reunited with the Eagles to lead their 70-piece orchestra on the Hotel California Arena Tour. So settle in for some great stories and industry wisdom in this interview. And without further ado, here's Jim Ed Norman. So I want to talk about, I've been, the last two days I've been going over your career. Okay. And anyone listen, you, you guys will Google this. You'll, you'll know that. I first encountered you, I moved to Nashville in 1994. I think you were running Warner Brothers. Yes. records so yes. you're like the big guy in town well, we were the brand new writers we did not have access to royalty on your scale um you were the guy we all wanted to give our songs to or because you were also producing yes yes and uh that's my first counter with your name although i quickly realized i was a big eagles fan and i remember when i moved to town i'm thinking jim ed norman jim where do i know that and i finally looked it up so let's go back um you well, let's do it. You're from Florida, is that right? Yes. What town in uh, Florida? Well, I was born in Fort Myers. Okay. Uh, my father uh, was a minister, a Methodist minister. Okay. And Methodists move the minister from town to town. Uh, so I just have to say Florida. Got you. There yeah, are my, unique. Uh, there are unique things that happened in, in in each one of those places. Right. I was telling someone the other day uh, that, uh, and it was a group of students. Uh, the kinds of things that you'll find yourself doing even when you have a fasc fascination for music and even when you're in music uh, in school studying music. I had a summer job packing tomatoes um, in a town called Bradenton, Florida, which is wow. the West Coast. And that day the foreman came and said, hey, you got a, a, 
a fellow on the phone here for you uh, that, that said uh, you worked for him last year. Uh, and uh, and I, I said, okay, well, it's okay if I leave the line here. It was one of those I love Lucy moments, I think, mm -hmm. where you know everything is coming down the line. You're getting ready to spill everything. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 get on the phone. And it turned out it was a call from uh, Kennedy Space Center and uh, I, where I had worked the year before. And uh, he said, and, and simple as this, you, uh, we're going to the moon this summer, son. You don't want to miss this. You need to get over here. We're able to hire one person of the group that was there. And uh, we all talked about it and decided it was you. You kept us all entertained. Uh, the, the other fellows had been engineers and engineering students. And um, uh, so I encourage uh, young people that are interested in music and doing something creatively and in the arts, hey, don't, don't overlook uh, packing tomatoes. You never know what call you'll get. You know? That's crazy. What, okay, it was there in 1969 when we yeah. went to oh. Apollo 11. Oh, I know. I I built the models from the kits. Oh. I was fascinated. I've I'm a complete space nerd. Yeah. I love. All, we could probably talk yeah, the whole well, hour yes. about that. But yes. how did you? So you went from and my grandmother worked for Methodist Church her whole life. Oh, so she worked for the big Methodist Church in Dallas. Yeah, that is a big one. It's a big yeah. one. Yeah, along um, with SMU. Yes. Which is where I went to school. Really? Yes. That's a great school. Great reputation. I would not have been able to afford that school, but I got a music scholarship. What was your instrument, or what were you doing? Well, I played low brass. So uh -huh. tuba, trombone, euphonium. That's fantastic. Well, you're in good company. You know, you got some great trombone players uh, then the, that went on to other things in the music industry. I, I think uh, Hungate. Yep, uh, trombone player, and uh, that's where I met David. I, I left Florida and went to North Texas. That's State. That's where I was headed with. Oh, this. okay. So yeah. you went to North <laughs> Texas State, which is when when I was was more known as a jazz school, one yes. o'clock lab band. That's right. Were Were you a jazz player? I did. I left the junior college. I mm -hmm. was uh, at in Florida and uh, Coco uh, right. Brevard Junior College. Uh, specifically to go to North Texas because of the big band program. I was playing trombone. I also wow. played euphonium. Uh, you start off, and I think uh, they called it in high school baritone, and right. what they did would be to convert us trumpet players. That's what I was, too. And you played baritone, yep. and you couldn't call yourself a euphonium player until you actually played in the bass clef. So I had moved from euphonium then over to trombone and really loved it. it was Which is a whole different deal. Yes. So North Texas State, so it's the premier jazz program in the country. Yes. I'm playing. And uh, you're in and it. I, I, it. And I'm not uh, good enough to play in the one o'clock. Okay. Uh, I was in the three o'clock band. My experience with instruments, uh, starting as a, a young child, uh, was to learn everything a little bit. Uh, I moved, I really had a hard time sticking with things. Mm -hmm. And so I moved from piano. I, I started on trumpet because my dad had played trumpet and that was what was available was trumpet. So sure. I started there, then started taking piano lessons. When uh, folk music came along, I got a guitar and learned uh, guitar. When the Beatles came along, it became electric guitar and just yep. sort of moved through. And on the pedagogical side there, the school learning side was uh, 
going through, as you say, the, the brass instruments. And trombone ended up being really my favorite. Mm-hmm. But because I had not played trombone all my life, I was competing with you know, Tom yeah. Malone and yeah. Steve Turry. And I mean, all these guys that were just extraordinary players. Uh, and But I enjoyed it. I learned more about uh, big band, big band arranging, horns in general and what have you. Uh, but while at North Texas, uh, in the apartment complex where I lived, uh, it was uh, probably a day not unlike today, a beautiful spring day. Uh, uh, people had their doors open, probably nearing the end of school and an excitement and what have you, and the apartment doors were open. Some people had grills out on the sidewalk and were cooking and as I recall, there was probably a little uh, beer drinking too. Yeah, sure. And but uh, I heard uh, music coming out of one of the apartments, uh, and as he tells the story, it was his uh, Led Zeppelin record he was playing. And I walked in and said, "Hey, you ought to check this out." Introduced myself and said, "You ought to check this out." And I, I gave him a Dillard's album, the Progressive Bluegrass Group. Okay. And um, that was Don Henley. Right. Don and I then became friends, listening to music, uh, exposing each other to different kinds of music. Uh, And he had a band uh, already in place that had been there since junior high with a group of guys. And uh, I had gone back to Florida to work in the tomato plant. And uh, but I when I went back to north texas uh the 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 fall that next year uh don called and said that there had been an an unfortunate accident Uh, the keyboard player in the band had been killed on a motorcycle Mm. and so Mm. he then said uh, you uh, have a similar taste uh, and interested music, I'd help them load the the van, and so I got to know the guys. Uh, but I I dropped out of school and moved to Linden to get in the band. Uh, at the time, the band was uh, named Felicity, and we continued the tradition of playing clubs in Dallas and frat parties, uh, UT, uh, and. At the same time, quickly thereafter, added a fellow named Al Perkins, who played steel guitar, dobro, and guitar, because we began to move towards this uh, new, uh, I think the, the reference was uh, country rock. I just, I just wrote that down, <laughs> country rock. Country rock, that okay, that's right. And uh, the, the steel guitar was the, 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 the final imprimatur and marker, right? You know, the, well, we, you were in country yeah. rock when you had a steel so guitar. So we, this is, we got to stop here because okay. I, I got to get, I got to dig in here. Wait a minute. So was it Don's idea to bring in a steel? Did you guys just love country music? How, how, because that is sort of, I can, further down, I know we're getting into banjo came in, like on the first Eagles proper record. That's right. Yes. Uh, Bernie. Uh, Bernie Ledden. Lyndon. Yeah. Yep. So was it both of y'all's just love for country? How did the steel get in there? It, it was love of country. Uh, Don growing up in Texas. Right. Uh, and my, my my name in the industry is Jim Ed 
Norman. Uh, my given name is Edward James Norman III, a very proper New England name, don't you know? And while at school, it was always if they were taking attendance in the beginning, it was Edward Norman, and I would just raise I'd never been known as Edward or Ed. My father was Ed. Uh, I'd always been Jim. And the turns out, sitting right next to me in the trombone section is another Edward. And finally, one day, the upright bass player, the salty old Navy guy, had had all he could stand. He says, okay, enough of this. We're going to call you Jim Ed because it's the you know inversion of your name. But we're going to call you Jim Ed after Jim Ed Brown. Jim Ed Brown, right. Because you like country music. Okay. And so what you had at North Texas was this dynamic, really, with jazz being the highest of the high art forms. Yeah. And country, the lowest of the low. Stepchild. Yeah. And because I liked country music and listened to it, then that's how I got the name Jim Ed. I wore it proudly uh, rather than trying to run from it. And But I got introduced then from everyone that knew me at North Texas as Jim Ed everywhere I went. And after a while, that's what it, what it was. It stuck. And... But Don, growing up in Texas, the rest the the guys in the band at the time uh, were all Texans. And mm -hmm. the combination of taking great classic country songs, but then building these great arrangements uh, with orchestra and horns around them, was right up my alley. And so I got pulled down into the world of, of uh, country music early on and a love for and of it. And so I, I exactly, I, I think it was just sort of this natural progression where it was, we're moving towards this sound of country infused in what's going on. And prior to my getting in the band, the band had been a, a, a band that played frat parties and you played yep. uh, a Beatles. lot of frat party music, Credence and soul music yep. and Beatles. Uh, Beatles. You, you played um, those songs to entertain. And then as the, the effort was undertaken to uh, develop a sound and a style, the steel uh, came in and or just the, the natural country intent again and consciousness. Even mm -hmm. the songs, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young had come along and yep. the harmonies and the structure of what was going on there. I remember how we drive down the... Um, the highway going to a gig or uh, listening to the radio and even Ray Price come on with For the Good Times. And yeah. you, you know, you, for me, with the orchestra and what was going on, my heart would melt. But everybody loved, we loved listening. Behind closed doors, pigs, piano lick. Yeah. Everything about it was just so electrifying that um, we found ourselves, I think, um, sucked into the vortex <laughs> real quickly. Well, here's an interesting, you know, I'm thinking about, so you're at the big at the genesis of this one of the biggest most successful rock whatever the eagles they kind of have their own category really but what's interesting is 20 years later what you guys did as the eagles influenced modern country music yeah it's been, in a big yeah. way yeah. so it's sort of odd that you were being influenced by classic country you do this huge body of work that's that's rock pop no, it's rock i don't know what that was but then it goes on to completely influence modern country music yeah. you know song structure everything yes everything i mean 
up until probably eight years ago when hip hop started to creep into country as far as the beats, mm-hmm. the, the groove styles. Before that, all modern country was based on Eagles-y stuff. Well, they wrote great songs. They did no write great songs. No matter what category or classification you yes, want to sir. give it. That's right. They were great songs. Yep. You know, just fantastic. And if, they, if there's a con- contribution to country music and a continuation of influence, it was that no matter what you're doing, no matter what form you're using to uh, frame the music in, if you write great songs then you are continuing that great tradition of songs that really sprung in many cases from um, the country and right. that focus of uh, three chords and the truth. <laughs> the, yeah. the, 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 the focus was on what you were saying and the, the, the painting of the images and the stories. And they were relentless in that pursuit of. Uh, I still had a, a, a image in my mind of uh, Don uh, when doing the vocal on Desperado, uh, still working on uh, some notes on his yellow legal pad uh, uh, with the lyric. But I had a. I hope I can find it. I had a version of that uh, because they had rehearsed before going to London to record this record. They'd rehearsed and started working up new songs. And they had, it was uh, around this time that the TIAC 4 channel uh, tape recorder came out. Yep. And so in rehearsals, they would frequently then record. And I ended up with a demo where that had uh, something I don't remember because it's been a long, long time now since I heard it. Um, but it was, you know, Desperado. Come down from senses, you know. <laughs> where he was still working was, it out. He is still working it out, and you'd hear a lyric every now and then that would come in that was retained, mm-hmm. and then other times where it was just humming, but the the, the framework was there uh, of what this song was going to be, and. It's what I began to even listen to as far as its harmonic structure. Right. and Because the, you did the string arrangement. Or, yeah, the orchestral Which is one of the most iconic, country, probably the most iconic country rock string treatment ever done in that oh, yeah. genre. Well, you are kind to say uh, no, so. I, 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 no, I think it is. <laughs> For me personally, I'll put it that way. That particular record, it's unbelievable. Let me ask you this. When you were talk to us about that, when you were working on that, did you have a sense of where that song would actually find itself in the history of rock and roll? Absolutely not. Okay, great. <laughs> we love that. I, Go ahead, tell us. I uh, Desperado was the very first thing I ever did in my life uh, orchestrally. I had done a string quartet. Uh, the group that I was in with Don, we changed our name to Shiloh, and we mm-hmm. made an album. Kenny Rogers was our producer. Mm-hmm. I wrote for the album a steel guitar instrumental, and Al plays the steel guitar, and I talked Kenny into letting me do uh, a, a string quartet just because I was imagining that sure. already, that kind of envelop, enveloping of what was happening uh, musically with orchestral texturing. 
uh, I got to do that. So I had done a string quartet. So the next thing that I did was uh, Desperado. And it came about uh, because Don and Glenn uh, fought for me because Glenn Johns didn't want some yokel, you know, mm-hmm. especially one, I guess, named Jim Ed, you know. Right. Uh, and I, I, I don't blame him. You know, subsequently right. he, becoming he didn't a know, producer. You didn't, have the, you didn't have the resume. I didn't have a resume at all. Okay. So the guys sent me the, uh, the track that mm-hmm. they had recorded and that I was in. I probably did not take um, uh, pencil to paper for two weeks or more all i did was listen to the song and it was largely there i mean by this point it was really shaped and what it was going to be and it was um uh, for me it was a stephen foster-esque in in its nature Mm -hmm. uh it also had some other interesting connections uh for me as far as even melodically um but I listened and absorbed what was being said and then just imagined. Uh, I would dream it at night even. I would uh, put myself even at times in sleep. I'd be singing that song, thinking that song. And I would find myself uh, that in that in-between state mm-hmm. imagining what mm-hmm. it is. And so there, you know, the, the lyric, uh, there's a rainbow above you, you know, getting the strings soaring above. I did something also uh, unique uh, in that um, I had no violas on the session. I had only violins, cellos, and upright basses. Uh, The day that I was uh, to do the session, I think I had 36 uh, players out there in the orchestra. In London? In London at Olympic Studios. Okay. Uh, Over in London, the contractor of the session it was called the fixer <laughs> but i stood right by the uh, doorway of because they had to pass through the record room uh, the control room to get out to the record room and uh, so i stood right by the doorway and he stood next to me and he said uh, jim edville this is and he introduced me you know give me their name oh you might be interested to know uh, he played on uh, yesterday the next one could oh the so and so and there was a parade of people. Oh, uh, he plays with the Queen's Chamber Orchestra. Oh, he's in the London Symphony Orchestra. And this stuff went on. By the time I got out in the studio, my, I was a nervous wreck uh, <laughs> as far as what was going these on. these guys were heavy hitters. <laughs> these are big yeah. name guys. They're great players. I then go out into the, the record room. Uh, there, there are the chairs set up. No headphones. Now, every session that I'd seen wow. uh, domestically in the, the States, uh, the string players all had headphones on. They were yeah. li- everybody listening to the same Or they thing. had those one-eared... Uh, yeah. Yeah, but so something. They, they had something where they were able to hear what was going on in the track as well as the conductor uh, that they would then get cues from. So I went back in and, and told uh, Glenn Johns, the producer-engineer, and said, Glenn, I noticed uh, there's no headphones out there. I, well, you're going to conduct, aren't you, Mike? <laughs> and, and I said, well, I guess I am. And so in that moment, I um, did my first arrangement uh, and became the, arranger, the composer, arranger, conductor, all in one fell swoop in that moment. Wow. And uh, 
the the record when it came out was not a great success. Uh, they had already had three successful chart records with uh, Witchy Woman, Peaceful, Take It Easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Desperado came out, I think some of the comments even from the record company, oh gosh, they've gone and done a cowboy record. And uh, it subsequently, as we know, uh, did extraordinarily well and the kind of impact that it uh, ultimately had. Uh, Linda Ronstadt, heard mm-hmm. Desperado and then decided she would like to record it and I ended up doing the oh, uh, wow, strings okay. and horns on her record as well but Desperado is the uh, the most wonderful uh, experience for me uh, of late certainly because it's the very first thing that I ever did and it's the last thing that I hear as a part of the encore each concert that the Eagles do. And um, my entire life as an arranger, subsequently then even getting to be a producer, grew out really of that moment because as that record came, that there were a group of people who, when hearing the music and then reading the credits, it became, well, Jim Ed, I didn't know you were an arranger. And so some people truly didn't. Others, I'd been knocking on their doors, you know, right, saying, hey, right. I'm an arranger and would like the opportunity to. And then that stamp of approval um, uh, being associated with the guys it got this and the next. And I actually got my first job as a producer. I got recommended, had, had not really done any producing, but got recommended by some fellas that I had w- were doing arrangement, uh, arranging for in New York, Hank Medris and Dave Apple. Uh, they, uh, Hank had been in the Tokens, A Lion Sleeps Tonight, mm-hmm. yeah. but they were producing uh, uh, Tony Orlando and Don. Okay. And they had a, a group the, that they'd signed, and they had seen my name associated with Eagles, and so they got in touch, and I'd gone to New York. As fate would have it, uh, they got asked to produce uh, someone and they didn't have time. And they said, hey, there's this kid on the West Coast you ought to talk to uh, that would be interested, told the record company. And so, lo and behold, one day, uh, while uh, at work once again, I was no longer packing tomatoes, but <laughs> I got a call at work from Clive Davis. Wow, where were you working? I was working at Sunbury Dunbar, which was RCA's publishing company. Adjacent to what it, you wanted to do, but you weren't exactly doing what you wanted to do. That's right. So so Clive Davis calls. Clive Davis calls. Who's the, who's the man? He's the absolute man at that point, Absolutely. Right? Okay. And, and he ends up saying, I don't know a lot about you uh, other than that you worked with the Eagles here uh, and that you'd like to produce. And I go, yeah, well, I, I definitely would love to produce. Now, the thing I've had the opportunity to do is to be around someone like Don Henley, who takes songwriting seriously. He was an English major there in North Texas and, mm-hmm. and well-read. Um, I was now working in a publishing company, and I got to hear uh, songs and yeah. writing and the, uh, be around the craft of writing and get a, a sense of what it was about. I got a chance to be exposed. I got a chance to pitch songs. I then uh, had the job of listening to writers from the street and got to listen to writers. I was okay, you, Jim Ed, you go meet with this person. So I got exposed to and began to listen to songs in a completely different way. 
I don't know what it, when it was for you, you that a transition happened, but we, if you grow up as an instrumentalist yep. playing low brass and all these other things, you really focused more on harmonic uh, progressions, melodies, and what have you. And at times, records, we, we felt confident that they're records that were hits and very successful that people had no idea what the lyric was, yep. <laughs> what was going on. Yep, I, I was exactly the same kind of guy, and I got my butt kicked when I moved here. That's when it happened. <laughs> and I, within a couple months working with some people that I got to work with, I realized, oh my, okay, well, all right, it's all lyrics. Yes. It's not a sonic town, it's a lyric town. Yes. So I, yeah. I had to go back, yes, there was a moment where I realized I'm back to the grindstone. Yep. I know it. I know it. And, I, and it took me two or three years. Well, it, it, and it took me longer than that to even understand, the, I think, the, the impact of the craft and the nature of the craft and how necessary it was to understand the craft to really come up with something that was going to be extraordinary and special. Um, but being around it now, uh, right. not only from the early uh, being in the publishing company, but having the luxury of being around uh, writers like Don and Glenn and uh, Jackson, JD, and all those people, yeah. be able to hear the quality and the attention and focus and detail uh, that uh, when Clive called uh, and said, Well, I don't know much about, can you meet me uh, at the hotel um, and let's discuss this? So I went over there and said, Well, I because I don't know, I want to play you some songs. I don't want you to tell me what you think of them. And, <laughs> and wow, nerve-wracking experience. Yeah, once again. Uh, so I sit down and I listen. And he plays a song, and uh, I go, I, I don't really uh, have a good feel for that. He said, Well, I think that's a hit. I'm going to do that with Melissa Manchester. Oh, okay. Uh, play another one. I no, I don't. I don't hear that. So I think that's a hit. I'm going to do it with Barry Manilow. Uh, and this went on for a bit Wow! where I'm going, oh, wow. man, you know, wow. the master is playing me songs yeah. and I'm not getting it. And hitting. he thinks they're hits. Yes. He, he plays a song and I go, if you're going to give me a chance to produce a record for you, let it be with that song right there. I feel it. I understand it. I, I, I know what to do. I, I really feel strongly I know what to do. And he said, okay, I don't know for sure who it is I want to pitch to you artist-wise then, can you come see me tomorrow? Yes, I think I can work that out. Uh, and I see him the next day, and he plays me um, a young lady uh, who has recorded an album already and says, do you think she could record the song that you like? And I go, yes, I can, I, I can hear the record in my head of what to do. Uh, I think she can. He played me a song from the album that she had done and said, what do you think of this song? And I said, I like the song, but I don't think it's been arranged properly that it could really be done differently. He said, I was thinking the same thing. So would you do these two songs? Yes. So the very first producing job that I got was working with um, Jennifer Warnes, and the first song that I produced was Right Time of the Night. Wow. Um, and that's yeah. the one you heard that you told Clive that's Davis. The one that that's one so yes. you had a good ear there. I said, uh, you know, yes. Well, I, um, because the, the song that Clive had asked if I could do, along with the one that I'd chosen, uh, Right Time of the Night, and the other one's called I'm Dreaming, uh, 
they were really not similar at all. And so I got a group of musicians that I thought could walk both worlds. Great players. They were all in Neil Diamond's band. So I get these king players, great players, cut the two tracks. I take them home. I get a rough made, and I take them home, and I listen to them that night. And the song Clive has chosen sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. And the one, and right time of the night was horrible. Really? Yeah. It did. It no feel, no nothing. It just stunk. And so I had a real. It was a seminal moment for me uh, in how I was going to address now this, you know, circumstance. The next day, the head A and R from. Uh, Arista called to say, hey, Jim Ed, how did the session go? And I said, it went great. Uh, I've got to cut uh, right time of the night again. And he said, uh, there was a little silence. He said, oh, uh, what's wrong? And I said, oh, nothing wrong. I just, I got to cut it again. Um, and he said, well, how's your budget? And I said, the budget's fine. I got it under control. Now, what I'd been able to do, uh, being an arranger and a fan of great arrangers, in the budget for those songs, I'd put in that I was going to hire one of my idols, a fellow named Nick DeCaro. Nick had written all those beautiful arrangements on the Gordon Lightfoot records, like if okay. you could read my mind. I mean, the list went on and on and on and on. And I was going to work with Nick. Well, there went my Nick DeCaro budget when I had to recut again. So I ended up getting a whole new set of players, a new engineer, a new studio, a new everything, essentially, is what it was. And went in and cut. As a matter of fact, I had Matt Benton on drums, who was from North Texas. Wow. He had played in the one o'clock band uh, with David, um, Tom Malone, all the guys that went to Saturday Night Live uh, band, uh, were right. all from the one o'clock band. Um, the Blues Brothers, uh, they're also affectionately known as, you know, the band that was with them. And uh, cut right time of the night was happy with it did overdubs got everything together got it. the big day comes clive flies back out to los angeles and can i come over and play and what i got so i come over and play and what i got and, and he says you did good kid it's obvious that i'm dreaming is a smash now i'm crestfallen heartbroken because you you I, okay <laughs> all right you did not agree with that well it was like i i i couldn't not agree with it because it's the master sure. i mean the guy yeah, that, yeah. You, he yeah. didn't get called clive davis for nothing no you know? no <laughs> he earned that name no and you got to be careful oh you know the experience was just cool your jets and listen and learn what you can learn from this and so i just i stood down uh and uh, as fate would have it the publisher of right time of the night called clive and said Clive, you've had this song on hold for six months. Imagine that now. So people have songs on hold for three years, right? Yeah. <laughs> Waiting wow. for so-and-so to have their album come out. But in, uh, you've had the song on hold for six months, which back in 76 there, 77 was an eternity. Uh, and if you don't uh, release it, then John Travolta has heard it and wants to record it. John was on the hit television show, Welcome Back, Cotter. I think right. And... Uh, was also now making a record. He was a teen heartthrob. Sure. Dude. Yeah, I remember. Was this pre-Grease? Yes. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. 
and that he'd heard it and wanted to record it. And so somewhat under duress, the song gets given to the promotion department at Arista, and they go, well, this, we think we could do something with this, uh, Clive. And so uh, they released it, and I don't know, it was uh, eight weeks later, it was you know, soaring up the charts and ended up selling a, a million copies, made it into the top 10 um, of the pop charts, and then crossed into country. Wow. Most of the time it was yeah, right. You start in country. Yeah, backwards. You start in country and then you cross this way. Well, it was a hit in pop charts and then uh, moved into country. But that experience uh, I, I talk about because of it was sticking to your guns when you have a feeling about something. But there's also a uh, I think out of it, I developed something that I also share with uh, people who are struggling at times when it comes to how to break through. And I say, patient, positive, persistence. I co-opted that from in school. We learned the three B's, Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms. Right. And then I changed it to Bach, uh, Bacharach, and the Beatles. <laughs> and eventually it was the five B's. It was Bach, Bacharach, the Beatles, and Bobby Bear. And, uh, but... The three P's then became um, patient, positive, or persistence, and, and you, you got to have all of them. You can't, you know, you, you, if you're patient and you're positive, but you're not persistent, it won't work. Yep. If you're persistent and you're patient, but you're a jerk and not positive about what it is that's, that's going true. on, it won't work either. So I said it requires these, I think, three uh, elements then to, and as you keep pressing through. and. But I also have a great story about how in producing and talking with young producers, the, the, the feel uh, of something uh, outruns tuning and all the other stuff, unless something's just maybe horrific. When I wrote, now because I had to write the string chart <laughs> on both uh, I'm Dreaming and Right Time of the Night. And as I write the chart, I write it uh, by just for memory. Really? And I get into the uh, the studio, the day we're in the studio to record, the studio breaks. Nothing's working. The okay. board's not working, not talking to the tape machines or and something. all this kind you of thing. You couldn't record. Couldn't record. Um, so th the string players, uh, and that's one of those classic, you know, uh, deals where the clock is out there mm -hmm. and when that clock strikes one o'clock i got a 10 to 1 session sure. and they got a movie date down in hollywood at two so at one o'clock they're gonna bolt right they're out the door we're over in burbank and they're gonna have to go down to hollywood the studio stays down for two and a half hours oh my god and i now have a half an hour to get two songs done oh i spend 20 minutes working on the one clive chose you know, I just know that's the well. I also well, that's it was the one a, he loves, uh, and was, you're trying to get a gig. Yes, and the sight read right time of the night. Wow, clock what? strikes one, and they're gone. One take. One take. I walk into the control room and plop down in the chair. You know, just a complete mess. You, 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 imagine this being your first record. No, it's crazy, <laughs> crazy, and. uh because right time of the night is still up because it was the last thing we did, I finally just recover enough and I tell the engineer, I said, well, hit play. Let me hear how that went. In the second verse, right away, there's this rub. You know, and I go, roll back. What is that? I had written 
from, from memory, I'd written the cello parts to go with the bass from the original session that I had done oh. before recutting it. And it was where the bass was pushing, you know, it was like a dotted quarter or tied to an eighth and it would push where the subsequent recording, I didn't want that anymore. I, was, I turned into the more beetle, you know, the boom, boom, boom kind of right. thing. Then uh, I had a modulation in the song. And as, this, as it marched up from a four over five to a four sharp over five sharp, you know, to modulate, mm -hmm. um, I hear screech, 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 screech from the violin. I said, what in the world is that? Turns out, you know, as I'd, I'd written the violin parts in the new key already. So they're a half step off. Oh, so they just, they just, well, they were sight reading. They were sight reading. So they just played what they was did there. It, they correct. They actually yes. did it correct from they their point of view. They did it correctly. Wow. And so I was, oh my goodness, what am I going to do here? And so in mixing, just turn down the cello rub <laughs> that's there. On the screech, 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 I got an electric guitar and put like that over there, loud electric guitar. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, there was a tension that was created in that right. walk up that then as it resolves, and as I've told that story from time to time uh, with friends in the studio, if it, uh, we get to telling stories and I talk about the beginning, I've had people come back and say, I heard right time of the night on the radio the other day, and I heard that one, I heard one little remaining <laughs> that happens in that walk up. Right. Of, uh, right well, now. what do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. That's right. How many happy accidents have you been of all the wreck? I mean, I know you thousands, right? For the records you've made, things that you didn't plan on, or oh gosh, yes, you know. And the, the smartest thing I've learned is is to have a basic framework and don't plan on anything because you never know what it is that's going to happen. You know, I've gotten to a point, or I, I did get to a point where I knew I can write everything out and just have people people play mm -hmm. what it is that I've written. There's an efficiency with respect to all of a sudden being able to get uh, three. Uh, maybe even four songs done in a session, right? You know, just fly through with, you got great players, they just play what's written. I, I learned early on, you miss so much by doing that. Um, and it made more sense to get fewer songs in a session and let the cosmos participate with you in some fashion and what all of these other amazing musicians yeah, were going to bring. Because right, they bring yeah, yes. so much. And then yeah. at the same time, Sometimes you have to crack the whip because it gets out of control. That's right. And then, and then, of course, the orchestral, the string people, any of the people that read, they don't really – I mean, I've seen some cello guys, solo cello guy could come in and improvise. Yes. But in general, they don't. They don't. They just – right. and then, like you said, they're out the door at uh, 1 o'clock. Yeah. They're yes. a whole different set, man. They are a whole different breed. They are a different breed. They are not like <laughs> the, the Nashville Cats, you know what I mean? Don – Don tells a story about during Desperado when we were recording that, uh, and he, he does a British accent. He said, the guys are talking. He said, they don't care at all about what it is they're doing here. They don't know what they're doing. And it was funny. I don't feel like a Desperado. <laughs> <laughs> don't go away. Pitch List will be right back after the break. This episode of Pitch List is brought to you by Screened Threads. Telling a story is what Screened Threads does every day. 
Screen Threads is a family-owned business specializing in Nashville curated gifts. Thoughtfully crafted and simple designs set Screen Threads apart. Check them out online at ScreenedThreads.com or visit them in person at Marathon Village, located at 1200 Clinton Street, Suite 38 in Nashville. To get 10% off your purchase, use the promo code PITCHLIST online at ScreenedThreads.com or in person at their store by mentioning PITCHLIST podcast when you check out. Let me ask you this. You, 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 you said something before, and I want to come back. You said you had a story about Hotel California. Oh. Which is another, I'm not going to say it's the Eagles' best record, but it's probably the mom, one of the moments for the Eagles, I think. That's Absolutely. The, the big, yes. you know, it sort of defines them or what they became, what you guys were moving toward. So tell us, this. you said you might well, have a story I think about what it that. Was is, again, it had to do with the nature of, what this business is and how we all work together and how we participate and what it means to be a part of that entire process. And I, I get to use this one particular thing in, um, again, when talking with anyone about always do more than you're asked to do. And the example that I'm able to use currently because of Hotel California is that the, there was a song on the record called Wasted Time oh. that I was so moved by yes. that I wrote an orchestral piece that is uh, now known as the Wasted Time Reprise. Yep. Uh, but I wasn't asked to do that. I just was so moved by the song and the melody, so I wrote this piece. Uh, again, the fates intervening. There was enough time left over, as opposed to the clock running out in this case. It was about a ha half hour left over. And I said, hey, guys, I wrote something. Would you be interested in hearing it? And they said, sure, we'd love to hear what you got. And so uh, once again, I think we did one run through and recorded it, and then they were out the door. Uh, but uh, it ended up because the record, when it originally came, was on vinyl. And mm -hmm. so you had side one and side yeah, two. And I so had side it. two opened with the reprise before uh, the side two bit. I listened bit to it, I, I don't even know, 500 times, I bet. <laughs> I just wore that record out. Yeah. I've well, had it as a record, I've had it the CD. Um, yeah, that's yeah. one of my favorites. Well, and I, uh, as I said, I, I get to uh, use that as an example of a well, you never know. Right, because you'd asked a minute ago, did you know where, how Desperado would fare in the pantheon mm -hmm. uh, of great music and great songs and great musical contributions to the world? You know, really, uh, if music and is America's contribution to world culture in so many ways, that uh, that uh, no, didn't know it, didn't know it when the reprise got written uh, as a just but it was being moved creatively going with uh opportunity going with the the moment yes uh, and you just work through it and it, it happens if you're fortunate it happens right right well let me ask <laughs> i, I want to backtrack a little bit you've worked with so many iconic songwriters jackson brown you mentioned jd souther uh obviously don henley glenn fry um, and actually, I was going through, again, I, I can't name them all, but 
a lot, a lot of incredible writers and so, and a lot of country writers. But you know, these guys. I mean, I'm getting the feeling from you that Henley and Fry, especially, were, you know, really worked on these songs. I mean, they were oh. like serious craftsmen, right? Yes, and to, right. it was like they're they. It seems like they realize, and you realize that everyone realized that that's that's what's going to make this work, right? That's, that's right. These songwriters you've been around, um, talk to us about that. Things that you've seen, things they might have in common, things they might not have in common. Can you? Well, clearly in common is the first the recognition that lyric and what it is that's being okay. said is crucial. Yeah. Um, the, you can begin to have some divergence after that with the role that music plays. The, the other thing to be able uh, to mention here is, is Desperado was the first song that Don and Glenn co-wrote. I did not know that. Yeah. And Glenn... Uh, by his nature, uh, from Detroit, right, was a more uh, R and B, soul, so, rock yeah. oriented. Don had rock in there infused along with his country. Gotcha. But they both realized the the value of lyric and what went on, and at times who was going to take the ball and run with it when it came to that. And they would have germs of ideas and lyric. Um, so you had first the attention to that. Then on one of these nights album, the, they'd been trying to record the song in the key of C uh, all day long. And Randy Meisner ended up then saying, hey, I, I'm having a hard time singing this in the studio as we sing it, much less night after night after night in the key of C. We've got to lower this a half step. And playing piano you know that yeah. you go from C, uh, C, uh, no sharps or flats. Yeah, uh, no transpose buttons that, on a that, real piano. That's right. And going to the key of B, now you got five sharps yep. and black notes. It's and a bare key right there. I was the utility person that got called from time to time. Gotcha. And I got a call uh, from the publishing company. Uh, and it was Glenn saying, um, can you come down and play? And I said, what's the matter? He said, I can't play in B. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. It's yeah, <laughs> and so I would go down and play, and I, I played then on "Take It to the Limit" that day and "Lion Eyes." I say that wow. day, that night. Um, so I got to uh, see various stages of their growth, development, mm -hmm. but the relentless attention to detail uh, was something that both Don and Glenn shared. No, no matter what might then diverge as far as the internal emotional motivation harmonically and melodically and feel as far as what right. the feel and style was going to be. The similarity, uh, to some extent, if you will, between even uh, Desperado and its Stephen Foster-esque nature and style, but also with Ray Charles. Yeah, uh, Glenn would be the, the the one that would be bringing that consciousness at times uh, to the music. At one point, uh, when working at the publishing company, I'd save my money for seven months, and I bought a plane ticket uh, to go see some guys that were making records because I'd I'd been driving down the 101 freeway there in Los Angeles, headed to work one day, and I heard this record. It was the most 
astounding sounds that I'd ever heard coming from the record at the time. Uh, it was a song called If You Don't Know Me By Now, Harold Melvin and the Blue yeah. Notes. Yeah, I know that record. And, and I had to find out, go meet the people who made this record. So I saved my money for seven months and I bought a plane ticket to Philadelphia. And I had enough money for two nights at the Holiday Inn uh, downtown Philadelphia. And of course, you're flying against the sun when you go east. Mm -hmm. So I uh, got there and it was in the afternoon, late afternoon. Uh, essentially was able to walk to where I could find their offices. So I knew where I was going the next morning and I spent the night. Um, got up the next morning and I went down there to the office, uh, waiting room, you know, reception room, and I said, hey, uh, is there any chance I can uh, see, and at this point I've got long hair and a beard. And right. Any chance I can uh, uh, speak with Gamble and Huff? And she said, well, they're not here. <laughs> I said, oh, well, I know she got a, a waiting room. Is it you suppose I could wait there uh, uh, until they come in? And she said, I don't think that'd be a good idea. And I went, oh, well, uh, is there any chance they'll be in later today? Because I'm, now I'm sitting there going, what yeah, you, you, well, you flew across I've the country. The, all across the country to meet these guys. And I'm but an idiot. So I go stand out in the hallway just going, what am I going to do? You know, this is big. I, I can't not meet these guys. And I hear music at the end of the hallway. This was an old office building, wooden doors, frosted glass um, windows with, you know, gold embossed names and, mm -hmm. and door numbers. But I hear music coming down at the end of the hall and I can hear somebody playing changes on the piano and I go that somebody has something to do with this music I've been listening to because I now know the OJs backwards and forwards I know the spinners you know the, the list went on and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes so I worked my way down there because I noticed there's restrooms out there and I said well everybody's going to have to go to the restroom sooner or later so I'll just wait um, and sure enough all of a sudden, after a while, it was probably only 45 minutes, but it seemed like an eternity. Stops, I hear footsteps, and sure enough, that door that has nothing on it, just the back door, opens up. And I, poor guy, I scare him to death. Because I'm standing there, you know, and I got, he jumps back, goes, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, Mr. Bell, I'm so sorry. It was Tom Bell who had been the arranger producer on all those spinners records. And I recognized wow. him and I said, Mr. Bill, I, my, my name is Jim Ed Norbert. I'm an arranger. I flew, I saved my money for seven months. I flew all the way here to meet you guys. Um, and uh, he goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bell, my name is Jim Ed Norman, And I saved my money for seven months. I kept getting that in there thinking that maybe he'd take pity on me. <laughs> and, and I wanted to, and I know all your music. I know all your records, you know, backwards and forwards and that kind of and he, I think his adrenaline was going because I scared him. And he finally came and he said, um, okay, you're a ranger. Uh, have you done anything? And I said, well, I've only done one thing. You wouldn't know it. It's a country rock band in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and he said, really? What, 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 what is it? And I said, well, it's a group called the Eagles. Uh, and he went, you know, one of those kind of looks that you can get like, mm -hmm. yeah, right. You did the. You did the arranging on Desperado? I said, yes, sir. What's your name again? And I said, 
I can show you my license here. Unfortunately, it says Edward James Norman, but my uh, Jim Ed Norman said, you wait right here. He went inside, came back out, and he said, that Jim Ed Norman right there, that's you. He had Desperado. Oh, he had it. He had the album. Wow. And so he said, um, what are you, what's up? What are you doing? I said, I just, uh, we're all, I mean, in particular, uh, Glenn, uh, fans of what it is that's going on here uh, and the records that are being made are just spectacular. And as the music uh, with from the band matured, you, know, you can hear some of those influences even, and not only Detroit, but the what was going on in Philadelphia along with the continued infusion of what was going on in country and, and that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Did you feel like so you were just you wanted to meet him you wanted to go there and see how are they doing this right yes take it to the limit comes and what made me think of this is because yep. we were talking about take it to the limit and now i'm playing piano on it and uh unless you got perfect pitch well i'm hoping you couldn't tell the difference between the intro of if you don't know me by now and take it to the limit they both go Oh, wow, they do. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Um, And the the string uh, arrangement that I did was an homage in in total respect for what it is that was going on there. So it, it, a lot of, it wasn't that it was talked about and built purposefully in in conjunction and in teamwork but rather happened on the natch you know it was just by osmosis if right you will. Yeah. right your your career it's it, it's like we could just talk forever we could talk forever but let's i do i am curious about what prompted your move to nashville i had um gotten started with producing uh with right time of the night mm-hmm. uh, and because of the success of right time of the night because of my connection with the Eagles and then uh, Irving around all of that. Irving Azoff. Irving Azoff, sorry. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Um, when Urban Cowboy mm-hmm. came along, I was, there, there was a consideration that, well, maybe Jim Ed could produce some of this stuff for Urban Cowboy. Sure. And the first person that then got thrown out there for me to work with was Mickey Gilly, uh, who we just lost. Wonderful man. Um, he didn't want to work with me. Just briefly, <laughs> what, what was his problem? Rock guy? I, well, not uh, a country he, guy? Yeah, I was not a country guy. Okay. Uh, he, uh, had, he thought of me as a guy who did ballads with Ann Murray. You know, had produced Ann Murray okay. by this point. Yeah, and you guys had, I mean, a string of massive hits. Yes. A massive. Yes. But I uh, finally, there was a decision that I would uh, do at least one side with Gilly, or do two sides, could do a session. Right. And the decision was to come here and do it in Nashville because that's where he operated from uh, when it came to recording. So I came to Nashville. Uh, I had never recorded here before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was proposing that we do the Benny King song, Stand By Me. And the success then of Stand By Me and working with Mickey and Another song I recorded with him, an old Buddy Holly song, True Love Ways, yep. were number one 
uh, on the charts three weeks apart were in the top five at the same time. And that had not previously happened in country music where songs followed number one that quickly right. at that right. time, nor have two songs in the top five. And, and I tell you, as far as uh, Gilly not wanting to work with me, and the reason I tell this story at all is because he would tell it on himself constantly. He still had some reserve about working with me. And we went into the studio. Now, Mickey was used to recording four songs in three hours, or at least three songs in three hours. And we had two sessions booked that day, a 10 and a two. Wasn't working. It just wasn't feeling right. Uh, so I started working on the arrangement, changing things around as you do when it's not working, not feeling right. We, we then broke at one o'clock for lunch. I took the musicians to lunch because I wanted to just get to know them more and visit and spend some time with them. And uh, Mickey went over to the, uh, as I recall, as he tells the story, the Hall of Fame lounge uh, that was a hotel, a Best Western Hotel, I think. And he, he proceeded to t tell everybody about this idiot that he was working <laughs> with from Los Angeles. And he said, we've been over there all day long. We've been in there for three. We still haven't recorded anything. I just, I've never seen anything like it. It was just crazy. And uh, we come back and start back up at 2 o'clock. I've moved um, the acoustic piano to electric piano and beginning to move things around as far as parts. And, and along with it, Mickey, who has been singing this song over and over and over and just fit to be tied about the whole experience, is, is finally leaning against the wall and singing, When the night has come. Where prior to that, he had been, you know, almost Jerry Lee sideways right. is what he was doing because that's what he had been known for in many cases, that ring on the piano and that kind yep. of thing. And so this had started to decompress. And we, we wound up at, I think it was at 4 o'clock, and he made a beeline out of that studio. I said, hey, I, I got to have you back here tomorrow, okay? And he said, what? <laughs> and, and I said, 10 o'clock tomorrow. I got here, okay. And the next day he comes in and sings, and knowing that at any moment he's going to bolt. He has just had it. And so he sings. And I then was, okay, do another one. Do another. He didn't realize I was just loading vocals up, knowing that he was going to bolt. <laughs> and I was going to comp. And he'd never right. been around the comping process as far as oh. what was going on with vocals. Sometimes you might have a line that was uh, more in tune. Right. But it didn't feel good. Right. Uh, I didn't, I always went with feel. So I there mean, are times yeah. when there were things that wouldn't be. Uh, perfectly in tune and i was, didn't care was he unfamiliar with the technique yeah so he's used yeah. to cutting a whole vocal he would do a vocal top to bottom and somebody say something to him about well you need to sing on that song you need to you're flat on that uh, note or whatever so right and i always felt felt that's easily a distraction for someone singing about they're preparing for this moment that's going to come up that they have to sing right. a particular right. way rather than just the complete gay abandon of i'm singing <laughs> yeah for all the fun and, yeah and uh we're comping allows you to then grab performances and i realized that at times when uh, artists that i've worked with and they w might get a, a, a grammy for best uh, female pop vocal performance 
to realize you've worked with them to achieve that vocal performance performance. because it really is now a performance of not only the you know the multiple tracks but it's a performance of what it is that's happening in the combination of those tracks that brings out then the emotion that's going on but at any rate it was a that experience with gilly led uh, to a long fruitful relationship and I, and I went, it was great experience too, because since he had gone to great pains to talk about this idiot he was working with, I, I became a genius overnight, you know. Right, with, right. With well, success. once you had these giant <laughs> records, yeah. And in many respects, that's how I came to Nashville. Gotcha. Was, as you so that, saying, that opened the door to all the work you were doing. That's right. And, uh, and then you eventually moved here. That's right. I, now, that was in 1980. Okay. And it led to doing multiple Gilly records, Johnny Lee. I was working with Michael Martin Murphy. Yep. But all of that led to then, um, you know what happened is I started being asked questions by artists that I was working with like, what do you think of my manager? What do you think of my uh, okay. record company? And it dawned on me. All I could do was make something up because I didn't really know the business. I, I made records and I turned them into a company who then did what they do. Right. And I really didn't know anything about the process. I knew a, a bit about publishing because I'd worked in a publishing company, so I understood what was going on there. But on the record company side, decided I wanted to get an A&R gig at a record company, uh, learn what a record company did, and then I was going to go back independent as a producer again. And I had done some work for Jimmy Bowen. Bowen actually owned the label on which Shiloh's record came out. Shiloh was on Amos Records, which was Jimmy Bowen's label. So I'd known Bowen. I got in touch with Jimmy and said, would you put in a good word for me with respect to A&R gig at Electra? He was running Electra Records here in Nashville. I think within maybe a couple of weeks of that conversation in putting all of the stuff together uh, at this point have two young girls uh, babies 18 month old and six week old baby girls and really say you know i'm not gonna raise them in los angeles yeah and have spent time here i'm to some extent a product of the south uh, right. been around it myself yeah well florida and, uh, texas yeah definitely and so that i call jimmy and say never mind thank you so much i appreciate it but i've decided i'm just going to move to nashville and at, th- at this point i had a production company with offices in la and nashville okay. and, a, and publishing company and so i pick up move to nashville uh, to which uh, Jimmy says, well, why don't you just come work with me then? If you're going to come to Nashville, come over here and work in A&R. Uh, I'm going to retire uh, at some point. I'll teach you the business, and then maybe you'll get a shot at running the company when I retire. I said, well, how long, are you gonna, how long is it going to be to retire? Uh, and he said, well, probably five years. And I went, well, I don't know that I'm going to be able to hang in that long. And Jimmy's five years turned in, he left in seven months. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and so, Did you go work for him? No. Uh, yeah. Mo Austin, who was the head of Warner Brothers Records, the big Warner Records, uh, came down, interviewed people here in town for, as I recall, it was 
about 10 days, various people. And at the end of that, he said, I know it's maybe on the early side, but if you want the job of running the company, um, it's yours. Wow. He had always had great success with creative people mm-hmm. at the helm. You know, Lenny, Lenny yep. Warnocker, um, yep. and um, and so he just he felt comfortable uh, letting a, a guy with and he said, you know, you you'll have help here. You you have people who will know more than you in the beginning. Right. Just continue to operate on your instincts and produce and make music and what have you. And was very encouraging. So it was okay. And the rest was geography. <laughs> well, right. So that's a pretty amazing story. So you were envisioning yourself going to A&R position, learn the ropes. If you liked it, you go up. If not, you have the ability to say, but you just jumped right in yeah. to run uh, Warner Brothers Records in Nashville. Who yeah, had, but I had great uh, help to me. Of course, people, cause, of course. You know, a couple of the, the people who had already been there and were fine with staying as opposed to leaving right uh, and going to uh, the next thing uh, that jimmy was going to do they just stayed and uh, we took a different direction than what jimmy had been doing historically Mm -hmm. it was no let's go sign the next generation of country music artists Right, and so the A and R people turned loose in many respects. Go find, go find something that's exciting and uh, that you can be passionate about. Right, so that we can sign people and be excited about what it is that and develop we're, them. And you guys develop were developing, them. That's which, right. yeah. which is unfortunately you don't see it as much. You know, I mean, I remember when I moved here, uh, Tim McGraw had like. Four singles, five singles that tanked. Yeah, until Indian Outlaw worked. That's right. Um, and that was common. You know, you got you signed people, and you you believed in that artist, and you were there for the long term. All those things. We don't have that anymore. I don't think. Yeah. And then now we're even moving into a different thing, where I just don't think we even have the record company anymore. More management, or you know, everyone's streaming. They're owning a lot more. You know, it's just a completely different yes. business. It now. is, but the business has changed constantly ever since I began to study it back as a kid in the 60s. And look, it, it, it was constantly changing in one way or another. And I think this is just a continuation wow. okay. of that change. And it's that you... You know that I've, I've I had people at times come to see me at Warner's, um, and they would say, "You know, you've developed a reputation of forthright honesty, and I'm struggling with my comp- record company, and I'm struggling with this." There'd be artists that were not necessarily on the label, and um, and I said, "Well, tell me what's up. T- tell me what's going on." And a lot of times, when they'd tell me what it is they were bothered by and upset by, and I'd say, "Well, look." I think you really only have two choices. You can either go learn the business you have chosen, or you can go raise a bunch of money and start a nonprofit and see if you can figure out some way to change the business. Because what you've just outlined for me is just the way the business operates. And if you spend all your time getting consumed with the fact that it's changed and it's this and that and the other, you'll never um, be able to realize your dreams. And, and so most people would go back and learn the business they have chosen. 
<laughs> well, and it's a great point. It's a great point. It, it is always changing. It always has. And, uh, yeah, especially, you know, you see riders that have been around for a while. They start to sort of bitch and moan about stuff. And I'll tell you one thing that's never changed, and I don't think it ever will. If you write a truly great song, something's going to happen. Yes. I and, I and I don't mean like kind of great. I mean... If you write Desperado, something's gonna happen. Yes, yeah. I just I I believe that. I used to say it because you know a lot of people when they move here they think well I it's the politics and I can't and all the negative stuff and it, I used to say it. I agree. I you think know. and it's and you know what it is is if if you want to get together and co- and complain and gripe a bit right and well then still write what it is that's happening and then write that great one at the same time write to that day or get back right, together again right. another time and say you know what we're gonna write a great song independent of what is going on in the business and what we need to do and how we need to fashion it and make the demo do that but don't overlook that what you said is absolutely true you really need to just make sure you're writing great songs and forget about all the energy that goes into griping about how much it's changed life is short man it's a hard business it's it's you just really don't have time for that you know what i mean you really don't yes it's going to be it's challenging to get anything done even when people have talent you know that's right you've got to be down there but i love your three p's what are they again patient positive persistence yeah and you do need all three all three first and foremost be nice just be nice. Yeah. Okay. Be nice. I agree. And the other would be contrary to what Nancy Reagan said. Of course, a lot of people won't know who Nancy Reagan is, I guess, in this day and time. But uh, just say yes. She had that famous campaign, yeah. you know, yeah. about drugs. Just yeah. say no. Right. And I just and I go just say yes, not to drugs, but if you if somebody says can you, before they finish the sentence, you say yes. And if you don't know how to do what it is they've asked you to do, figure it out figure between it out. then and the day you have to perform. Because that's called, you just got a shot. Can you? And, and, and the way you're going to elicit that most often is by being nice and participating in some fashion, some form or fashion of what's going on. Well, look at you. Um, when uh, Don Henley asked you to sub- or do an arrangement and very famous producer glenn johns is thinking well he has no resume i have no a b c d this guy the guys these are the guys you know they've got a buddy you could have easily thought i can't do this they'll never you know it's so true i say it all the time too the answer is yes just say yes and then figure it out you know what happened is is after the desperado session we went to dinner Mm -hmm. to sort of celebrate the guys had never done orchestra on a record either that was the first for them as well and um, we went to dinner and celebrating and sitting around and sort of the gravity of the day, if you will, b- began to creep in on me. And I was and I said, guys, when I think through everything that went on, how in the world did you uh, get Glenn to agree to do this? I mean, and then they said, well, Jim Ed, actually, he didn't think you were going to be able to pull it off. And he had Paul Buckmaster waiting in the wings. Wow. <laughs> Paul Buckmaster had done all the Elton John. Oh, yeah. Range yeah, of he stuff. Was, yeah. Oh, he was king. He'd done movie soundtracks, all kinds of stuff. And so it was, it was a, a 
classic, as yeah. you point out there once again, as far as you, I could have said, I could have demurred on the front end and just sure. said no, but it's like, no, figure it out, be ready to go, no matter how much you're surrounded by maybe something that's negative and it's true. There's an old saying, opportunity knocks, uh, only some people answer the door. Yeah. You want to answer yeah. the door. That's right. Well, I could talk to you forever, but I think we're going to have to yep. uh, zip Understood. it up. Jim Ed Norman, absolute legend in the music business. I mean, I feel bad that we really didn't even cover. Dude, listen, if y'all listening to this interview, I'm telling you, Google. Google Jim Ed and just to get you know to get an idea of what i'm trying to tell you i mean we couldn't even get into it all so you know if you ever want to do it again we would love to do a part two there's yeah. just so many artists we didn't even talk about well i would look forward to it okay i really had an enjoyable okay. time visiting with you chris it's just it's wonderful okay thank you for being on pitch list and we'll see you next time thanks for listening to this episode of pitch list if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcast or your preferred listening platform. And if you want, feel free to leave us a five-star rating and review. For exclusive content from this week's guest and more, you can visit our website at pitchlistpodcast.com or follow our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Plus, don't forget to let us know on social media what songwriter, musician, or music business professional you want to hear from next. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>